Welcome to the first of our Summer Foundation breakfasts for this year. It's lovely to see so many um, happy faces in the audience for a nice early morning start. Um, it's my very great pleasure to introduce our speakers today. So um, we have Dr. Kate Gould and Amelia Hicks. They're both research fellows at the Monash Epworth Rehab Research Centre, which is a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> um, and they're going to be talking about a particular um, project that they're involved in called the Behaviours of Concern Following Traumatic Injury Project. Um, just a little bit more about their backgrounds. Kate is a clinical neuropsychologist in private practice and she has just actually started her own private practice now. Many of you might know her through her association with um, Sloan Osborne and Associates. Um, but Kate has just started a new practice called Thinkfully. Um, and Amelia, <coughs> excuse me, has a Masters of Psychology in Clinical Psychology as well. So it's going to be a fantastic talk today. There's a, a few different things happening. Um, first of all, there'll be about a 20-minute discussion, uh, or a lecture rather, not a discussion, a lecture from um, Amelia, introduction to the qualitative aspects of um, the study. Then Kate is going to spend another 20 minutes talking about that. Um, so you get a bit of a, a difference um, from them. And then at the end of that, we'll open it up to some general discussion. If you have any questions, Amelia and Kate are very happy for you to just interject and ask <coughs> away. Um, but any bigger philosophical questions and so forth, perhaps keep them um, for some really good discussion at the end. Um, there are no other particular announcements, but for those of you who might need the bathroom, um, and are not familiar with this place, you need to go back out that way and around to the right. Um, and I think that's it. Anything else that we need to cover? All right, terrific. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you for that lovely introduction. So today I'll be discussing our study, which examined behaviours of concern following traumatic brain injury. So what are behaviours of concern or challenging behaviours? So they cover quite a wide spectrum from violent, aggressive behaviour, shouting, yelling, physical violence, self-harm, all the way to apathy or lack of initiation, but also include things like perseverative behaviour, repetitive behaviour, uh, wandering or absconding from safe places into more risky areas, um, and also uh, inappropriate sexual behaviour and social disinhibition. So that covers a really wide range of things, including being a bit socially awkward, being inconsiderate, interrupting, nagging, impatient. And what we know from the current research base is that these sorts of behaviours are quite common following moderate to severe brain injury, and they're not restricted to the acute period after brain injury. They continue on into the more chronic period, and for some people they can worsen over time. The causes of these behaviours are really complex, um, and I've just grouped them into three general areas for today's talk. So we can think about them in terms of the pre-injury uh, personal and environmental factors. So perhaps the person was already having problems with their behaviour. They might have had problems with alcohol or drugs or a psychiatric diagnosis. Then there's the actual injury-related factors. 
So they may have sustained multiple systemic injuries and be in a lot of pain, be really uncomfortable and frustrated. Cognitive difficulties, reduced judgment, insight, ability to self-regulate. Uh, and also reduced communication or being completely non-verbal and the frustration that that causes when needing to communicate just those basic, basic needs. Also a whole host of post-injury factors, so mood changes, we know that anxiety, depression, PTSD are all quite common as well. Um, limited ability to return to valued life roles, so whether that was being mom or dad or being a student, um, their work role, and also the changed financial situation that happens as a consequence of that. Just talking a little bit more about consequences, they're really broad and far-reaching and they affect not just the individual, but also their family, friends, carers, and the healthcare system at large. So just some examples up there on the slides. For the individual, reduced capacity to live independently, relationship breakdown, dislocation from accommodation. For family members, a lot of stress. Uh, research shows lower uh, quality of life, mental health issues. And what we've found is that for family members, behaviour or challenging behaviour is consistently identified as the most problematic and burdensome consequence after a brain injury. So the gaps in the literature that our study sought to address were that most of the studies looking at challenging behaviour after brain injury are um, more so in the early period post-injury, with few really extending onto the more chronic period 10, 20 years after brain injury. So there's a lack of knowledge around exactly what behaviour looks like at that point um, for the individual. Also, a real paucity of in-depth studies from the perspective of the actual individual themselves. Do they think their behaviour's changed? Do they think it's a problem? How do they think it's changed? And within that context, it's very important to also have an informant's perspective, whether that be a family member, friend or, or um, carer. So firstly, to get a level of insight for the individual, but also to get their unique perspective as well on how that journey, um, living with or even caring for that individual with the challenging behaviour has evolved over time. There's also um, a tendency for studies to focus in on aggression, anger, and low frustration tolerance. Um, but recently, there's a great new tool called the Avert Behaviour Scale that I'll be talking about in a little bit more detail later. And that has um, provided us with some really fascinating information about um, behaviours across the categories, so all the behaviours that I was mentioning before, social disinhibition, sexually inappropriate behaviour. And what it's shown is that people do have behaviour in multiple categories. So it is a very complex situation and that verbal aggression and social disinhibition are the most frequently endorsed. Also treatment, what are people receiving in the community many years post-injury and do they think it's helpful? And if not, why? What would they like to see happening? So with all of that in mind, the objectives for our study was to determine the nature and the severity of challenging behaviour in individuals with moderate to severe brain injury living in the community, obtaining both the perspectives I mentioned before, so the individual and their close other, and explore the service use and patterns. Um, what were the treatments they were receiving and how helpful did they think that they were? So that leads me into the design of our study. So we had a quantitative aspect and a qualitative. So I'll be discussing the quantitative and then Kate will um, present the qualitative aspect in the next lecture. So we had three participant groups that we interviewed. So the individual themselves, 
a close other, which was mostly um, mothers, wives and attendant care workers. And we also interviewed clinicians, and that was mostly psychologists and neuropsychologists. Unfortunately, we weren't able to obtain enough clinician perspectives to include them in our quantitative analysis, but we did include them in our qualitative analysis, so we'll have a discussion of that in the next lecture. So we had a phone interview that canvassed a whole range of demographic variables, both pre and post injury, accommodation, uh, relationship status, psychiatric history, medical history, current psychiatric and medical um, issues. We also had the overt behaviour scale, which I'll discuss in a moment, and some objective measures. So that just refers to some brain injury severity data and the costs of their care as well. So the overt behaviour scale. So just in case there is anybody who isn't really familiar with the scale, it's a 34 item measure that canvasses behaviour across those nine categories in the last three months and it captures the severity of the behaviour in each category, the frequency that it's occurring, so from less than monthly to multiple times a day, and the impact. And that's the impact on people around them, also practical disruptions, for example, carers saying, I don't want to work with this person anymore. Um, and that can be all the way from no impact at all to extreme. And there's three important total scores. I'm just going to go over quickly because we'll be referring to them in the results. So there's the cluster score, and that's just calculated by summing the presence of each of those nine categories of behaviour. Total levers, levels rather, also comprises the number of severity levels endorsed. And then the clinical weighted severity um, incorporates the weight given to each severity level. So that has the most detailed information in it. So the participants that we um, invited to take part were clients of the Transport Accident um, Commission, um, which is a no-fault accident compensation system operating here in Victoria. And everyone had to have a moderate to severe brain injury, be within those age brackets and have a TAC payment in one of those areas. So the only important thing really to take from this slide is that TAC found just under 300 people who were eligible and then working down through people not being contactable or declining to take part, we ended up with 65 interviews with the individual themselves and 62 with close others. Some demographics, so to take away from this slide is that they were mostly males, they'd mostly had their injuries as adults but we did have some paediatric injuries as well. Um, and that based on GCS and PTA, it was severe, severe injuries. So the next two slides are broken down into pre-injury and current, so you can see some of the changes. So uh, as you can see in the top row there, quite a degree of relationship breakdown has occurred after the injury, and also a really substantial drop in employment. So if you just look at the full-time row there, you can see it's gone from 60% to 8% who are now in full-time employment. So quite a drastic drop. Similarly, you can see here that psychiatric disorders have increased, as have medical disorders and pain. So pain, 60%. So you can already see some of those variables that I mentioned at the start of the talk that might be influencing behaviour, psychiatric disorders, medical comorbidities, pain, uh, dislocation from accommodation, relationship breakdown. Oh, interesting. Okay, so on to our behaviour results. So when we asked the individual themselves whether they felt their behaviour had changed, about 80% did think that their behaviour had changed since the injury. And of those, about 80% again thought that that behaviour change was still current. 
When we asked them to say in their own words, so we asked both the individual and their close other, um, what, how did they think their behaviour had changed? What would they, how would they classify it? We got words like angry, moody, mood swings, and also a significant number of people saying, my personality's changed, but I'm not sure how to describe what's different. I don't know what's different, but I know that it is. In terms of behaviour support received of those with behaviour change, uh, only 38% were actually receiving support and it was mostly psychology and neuropsychology. But they were very satisfied, which is very nice feedback for the profession, so mostly highly satisfied and that was true of both the individual and their close other. When we asked them if they wanted further behaviour support, we had about a third of people who weren't receiving any support saying yes, they, you know, they felt they needed some more support. But interestingly, also of the people who were already receiving support, about a third were saying, I actually need more support. I need more help specifically targeted to my behaviour. So we were able to do a comparison of responses to see how the responses from the individual and their close other were matching up. So we're able to do that on four questions related to their behaviour. So the first one was simply, has your behaviour changed post-injury? A fair level of agreement and you can see from the key there that's really towards the lower end and that was mostly in cases where the individual self-reported no behaviour change but the close other felt that there had been behaviour change. Better levels of agreement for whether it was resolved or current, they agreed on that one. And also whether they were receiving behaviour support, there was a good level of agreement. Lowest level was where the further support was needed. So again, most of these disagreements were where the close other was saying, yes, we do think that further support is really needed and the individual with the TBI felt that they were tracking along okay. So our, our OBS results. So of our 62 close other reports, um, about 70% felt that their um, individual with the brain injury had behaviours of concern in at least one of those nine categories that I displayed before. And most commonly this was verbal aggression, socially inappropriate behaviour and lack of initiation. And so this is the nine categories here. So you can see as they're moving through from most frequently endorsed to least, that down the lower end is self-harm, inappropriate sexual behaviour and also wandering off or absconding. In terms of the number of behaviour categories present, so the average was three. Um, so most people were showing behaviour in at least three categories. The important thing to take away from this slide really is that people were showing behaviour up into the higher levels of severity. So it wasn't just that they had lower level severity across a number of different types of behaviour, verbal aggression, socially inappropriate behaviour, etc. But they were actually within the higher levels of severity across behaviours as well. So what does this mean? So behaviour problems and behaviour problems are present and significant many years following injury. So the sample was on average 11 years post-injury. So this is over a decade after the injury, still seeing these behaviour problems. Um, an average of three categories of behaviour and that echoes really well with previous research using the OBS measure specifically. And again, our most common behaviours were exactly the same as previous OBS research done both here and uh, overseas. The order of categories was also almost exactly the same, which is quite fascinating. So our um, least frequent being inappropriate sexual behaviour, self-harm, wandering, absconding, again, mirrors previous research with the OBS. 
the thing that was discordant um, with our results and previous results, once we started to look at a more detailed level of the different types of severity within behaviour, was that um, all previous research using the OBS has found that sexual talk, so making inappropriate sexual comments, uh, is the most common form of inappropriate sexual behaviour. But for our sample, it was non-genital touching, which just means things like touching a shoulder or putting an arm around somebody. Um, likely due to the injury severity in our sample. So a lot of communication difficulties and a small proportion of non-verbal individuals, we feel that probably um, is the explanation. <coughs> really interesting high rates of behaviour, self-reported behaviour change. Um, despite this, still more likely to evaluate their behaviour as unchanged when compared to their close other. Possibly due to some issues with self-awareness, also may have been the nature of the question as we posed it. So quite a general question asking them to think back and compare, you know, for some of them over 10 years to a pre-injury self that at this point might have been largely forgotten or idealised. In support of that um, hypothesis, I suppose, there was greater concordance on more specific questions such as is it current or resolved and uh, whether behaviour support was being received. So on that note, less than half are receiving support specifically for their behaviour, despite having TAC funding. And both the individual with the brain injury and the close other are reporting that they want further support. And even for those already receiving support, they still were feeling that they needed more support. And again, that's consistent with previous research that's found that um, individuals with challenging behaviour have a higher uh, proportion of unmet need. So what to take away from all of this? So ongoing support specifically targeted to behaviour or challenging behaviour is critical because behaviour may be present often at severe levels uh, many years after injury. It's also important to target interventions across behaviour categories, not just at aggression and irritability. And it's really important to obtain perspectives of individuals with the um, injury as well as their close other. That's all. Thank you. So hopefully Kai, that's given everyone a really good sense about, I guess, the extent of um, the issues with behaviour in that sample of individuals with, um, with t access to TAC funding. And perhaps that would have been a bit of a surprise for some people to see the sort of ongoing nature of those issues um, and the, the fact that many people do want more support or they're getting support and they're happy with it but they need more. So, I mean, it raises um, a lot of questions. It gives us a, a sense of the, the impact and the um, extent of the issues. But um, I guess one of the um, challenges of quantitative research is it doesn't get down into sort of really understanding a topic potentially. So um, I'll be talking now about um, a, a sort of another part of the program where we actually uh, ran a qualitative study, um, which means getting a kind of in-depth understanding of a topic through, um, it can be through a variety of means, but things like interviews and any other sort of information to pull together to, to get a richer understanding that really complements the quantitative um, or more numbers-based research that we've done. So um, you, you've already had from Amelia a, a sort of a definition of what um, behaviours of concern or challenging behaviours are and how um, 
that can be really problematic in terms of consequences for the individual, for the family, but also more broadly, they're very um, sort of challenging for clinicians um, to work with. They're described in, in, in research as um, very confronting and difficult to sometimes know how to best support individuals who do display challenging behaviours. They are also challenging for the communities in which the person lives who um, perhaps is demonstrating um, aggressive behaviours when out um, in interacting with people in the community and are also more challenging for funders who um, may feel that they need to invest more money towards attendant care support so that that person has, I guess, supervision when out in the community. So across, I guess across the spectrum, these are really important topics for us to understand. And more importantly, to provide treatment to so, to, so that we can reduce those impacts. Um, however, there isn't actually any strong evidence base for how do you support people and their family members um, for behaviour issues. There are some very handy um, resources for inpatient-based practices, such as um, Matthews and Krautz's handbook, but arguably that's not necessarily able to be implemented in, in a community setting where you don't have the control that you would in a hospital environment. Also, as um, Amelia described, we're looking at people who are decades after their injury as well. So they may not, not be any more sort of linked in with support services and have access to specialised treatment. The injury was years ago and some families might not really have that um, understanding of the association with the brain injury to even sort of reach out for supports at that late time. So it's really important that we do start to get a deeper understanding of these issues as that can really help us in designing effective and appropriate treatments. In terms of qualitative research that's been to done to date, in those for behaviours of concern have really sought to ask the perspectives of family members and carers and clinicians on these topics in some really um, helpful um, studies by um, Tam, McKay, Sloan and Ponsford, quite recently, Brain, and um, also a, a, a mixed method study in New South Wales that looked at um, quantitative and qualitative um, information um, based in New South Wales. Uh, there's been a one focus group um, on just irritability specifically, not looking at the kind of broader range of behaviour. And this study actually included individuals with brain injury in 10 monthly focus groups, which I think was a really novel design and very interesting findings. But to date, as far as we know, there haven't been any studies that have included the individual with the brain injury themselves in qualitative research looking at behaviour issues after brain injury. Um, and as Amelia talked about, it is really important to get the perspective of the individual with the brain injury. And to, to in sort of many respects, they were able to describe having behaviour change. So it does suggest that they are worthwhile people to include. They are the consumer as well. So the aim of um, the study I'm going to talk about now is to um, understand the lived experience of behaviour issues and their treatment in a qualitative design which does include the person with the injury, their family members or carers and the clinician as well. So we um, included individuals that um, have already been described in the study Amelia talked about. So they were clients of the Transport Accident Commission and we invited them to participate in this qualitative research if 
on the overt behaviour scale there was any behaviour evident. We weren't so much interested in talking to those individuals that didn't have behaviour issues. We also invited um, participants of non-compensable settings through two ABI organisations and we asked the clinicians of those services to complete the overt behaviour scale so we could identify clients as well. So as you can see here, these are our um, three participant groups. We have the individual who sustained the brain injury, we have a close other informant, so a family member or carer, and a treating clinician. And we were able to conduct 25 interviews, which is considered reasonably large for qualitative <coughs> studies. The previous um, two studies by TAM and Brain included five and six interviews. Um, and you can see here we've got the um, person with the brain injury, their sort of um, pseudonym over in this first column, then their close other. So we, you can see we've actually got a cross-section of you know, mother, father, sister, carer, um, wife, etc. And um, we also asked them to identify a clinician we could speak to as well, and then we asked that clinician to participate. And that just happened to be um, clinical psychologists and neuropsychologists. And you can see here also if they were funded or non-compensable, whether they lived at home or in supported accommodation. So just to tell you a little bit about our individuals with brain injury, they were all male, not by design. Um, they, uh, we did notice that the participants who had TAC funding were actually um, younger at the time of their injury and the interview than our non-compensable participants. Um, they were all in the severe range of, in terms of the severity of their brain injury. Um, for those with uh, TAC funding, we didn't have uh, injury severity information for our non-compensable clients, but they certainly were individuals with higher support needs. For instance, 80% of them needed assistance for personal care tasks compared to um, none for TAC participants. So in terms of what does the qualitative interview look like, it's a semi-structured interview format and we use that to guide our questioning and then you kind of um, can ask further questions to sort of pull out the details of a topic. The way that we asked those questions evolved over time as we reflected on the answers we were getting and sought to really um, sort of keep focused on specific themes that were emerging. So that's described as an iterative approach. And we asked, um, initially the questions were largely around behaviour and the general injuries and treatments as well. These interviews last from nine minutes with a very severely impaired individual up to 95 minutes. They were all done face to face. And they were recorded and then transcribed and proofread. We were very mindful of the challenges that could um, in be involved with asking uh, individuals with cognitive and communication impairments to participate in detailed interviews. So we had a variety of strategies to try to mitigate those potential issues, as you can see here. Um, things like um, summarising and checking for clarity, um, making sure that we repeated information or um, simplified questions. Um, and, and conducted those interviews at a time that was really suitable for the individual as well. The um, way that we sought to interpret the information we got from these interviews was using a, an iterative thematic analysis approach by Braun and Clark. This has six stages that essentially um, guide you through familiarisation with the data through repeated readings, generating codes which are sort of ex 
short excerpts of the data that we used computer software to organise. Then we identify from those codes themes that help us um, sort of uh, capture sort of a group of those codes. And you go through a, a process of reviewing and refining these with lots of discussion and lots of reading back of the um, transcripts until you get to the point where you can sort of really define and name a theme. And the, the last step is to really um, identify some key quotes that illustrate those themes. Um, and the, the last point is just a sort of technical point about um, how we um, understand, I guess, reality. <laughs> There's a lot of philosophizing that takes place as part of doing qualitative research. And our assumptions were there that there is a reality that exists outside of our observations, but that it can be influenced by our language, our culture, our professional background, etc., in shaping our interpre interpretation of that reality. So um, I conducted the sort of initial um, coding structure of how we labelled the different sort of comments that were coming out of the interviews. And Amelia, um, who also conducted some of the interviews, then went back and, and um, coded against my structure. So we wanted to compare how we were using that coding structure and that came out as a substantial agreement, which was very encouraging. Um, and if there were things we disagreed on, we'd just um, talk that through till we could come to a consensus. We also wanted to make sure into another sort of aspect of our rigour was that where we came to with all our sort of discussions and interpretations actually matched what the individuals had originally tried to tell us. So we went through a process called member checking where um, we had a few aspects to that. So for example, at the end of each interview, we'd sort of check back that we'd sort of captured what they were trying to tell us. Um, after we'd been through um, some of the analysis, we also um, spoke again with the individuals with the injury and, and checked that we'd sort of captured the kind of key points from their discussion and gave them the opportunity to feed back into our analysis. And, um, and at a more sort of detailed level, we sought the input of clinicians and key stakeholders as well. So then we come to the actual findings of our qualitative research. And what we came up with was this, um, this sort of framework that sort of uh, summarises the key themes that we discovered. So we've got behaviours of concern in the middle, and then we've got seven themes that um, relate to behaviours of concern in both directions, and also are linked in with each other. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go through each of those eight sort of shapes and, and themes and provide you with a, a pretty brief um, description of what each of those mean and a couple of quotes. The qualitative research can become very detailed and very complex, so it is a bit of a challenge to sort of compress it into a short talk, but I can let you know that this, um, this research has um, just been accepted for publication in neuropsychological rehabilitation, so you will be able to read a more in-depth um, version of this, although it never seems in-depth enough for all that we want to say. <laughs> so we could e write a paper about each of these themes very easily. Um, so this is the first um, sort of central theme, behaviours of concern. Um, one thing that was um, quite apparent early on is that the people that we spoke with um, who were living in the home setting, so they were individuals with lower support needs, they were quite aware of their behaviour issues and they described these issues to us without any kind of necessarily like shame or embarrassment. It was just very matter of fact, I hit this person, I lashed out. 
Um, so that was really interesting. The individuals who were living in supported accommodation, who arguably had higher support needs, they weren't necessarily um, as able to kind of communicate their um, behaviour issues specifically. So we had reports about the behaviour predominantly from the informants. So um, I've got some quotes here about um, an example that I've just said, you know, the very matter-of-fact manner about I've got a short temper, I'm aggressive, someone pushes me, I'll just hit, him, hit them. In terms of the nature of the behaviour issues, we found that um, all participants, there were descriptions of um, verbal and physical aggression and challenging social interactions, which really ties in with what Amelia's talked about as the kind of key behaviour areas. For those with those higher support needs though, we discovered a broader range of behaviour issues as described there. Interestingly, there wasn't a clear consensus of the pattern of how behaviour issues emerged over time. For some people, things were getting better. For some people, things had gotten worse over time. And for others, things fluctuated. When people did describe that there had been improved improvements, the individuals with the brain injury said, I made a difference. I, I'm, I'm the one that um, was active and the kind of primary instigator of these improvements. And similarly, the person, the close other said, I'm the one <laughs> that had made a difference. Um, they did all recognise that professionals had some role, so that is some encouragement. <laughs> but I think that's really interesting and that's probably a perspective that we may not have heard before, particularly um, uh, from quantitative research to date. And given the fact that no one's done this sort of level of research with the individual with the brain injury, it does provide us with that kind of unique perspective already. So I'll just go through a couple of the behaviour um, groups and what people were <laughs> describing about this. So verbal and physical aggression, um, you know, this is uh, some quotes all relating to Sam about how he lost it at Centrelink and he was worried they were going to call the police and his dad, John, said, much the same. He had real concerns that he was going to end up in jail because of this type of behaviour. And Will was um, Sam's psychologist who, um, again, you know, uses very similar language about um, Sam lashing out at people. In terms of socially inappropriate behaviour, that kind of presented differently depending on the level of support needs of the people we interviewed. So for those who are high functioning, living at home, getting out into the community, they were quite aware um, of impaired social skills, things like rambling, getting off topic. Whereas for those that were living in supported accommodation, impaired um, socially inappropriate behaviour may have presented like um, refusing to accept treatment, being impatient, inconsiderate or intention seeking behaviours like refusals. What's happened there? So that gives you a bit of a sense of the kind of um, the patterns and the presentations of the behaviour issues. Moving on to the first theme, I guess a really important theme is the brain injury and that we can't forget that um, these behaviours are very much associated with um, the brain injury. And the way that came through in, in these uh, interviews was particularly in regards to the cognitive changes as a result of the injury. Things like um, memory impairments, which were very frustrating for people to experience, 
um, as well as black and white thinking or reduced insight. And in fact, as well as that perhaps being a contributor to um, the experience of frustration and then leading on to behaviour change, that was actually a barrier for some people to actually be able to even engage in therapy at all. So Stuart, a neuropsychologist, um, does say that because of the, um, the individual's rigid and fixed mindset, he's really struggled as a, as a result of that and in therapy as well. So the next topic is control. Now, like many of these topics, uh, these themes, there's a kind of multi-directional relationship. So feeling a loss of control or feeling controlled was a trigger for individuals to, for example, lash out or engage in attention-seeking behaviour. But it was also a really interesting way that people described a behaviour as well. They talked about losing control. And on the other side, in a kind of more helpful sense, it could be a pathway for reducing control. So this is Joyce describing kind of both of those aspects, that lack of control um, leads to the behaviour, but also when he is engaged um, in choices and being able to have some control, that that makes a really big difference and that actually guides intervention as well. In terms of the theme of our environment, we, we described this as really in terms of particularly those in the supported accommodation, those routines and the structure and the consistency was very important. And that when there was a lot of change in the environment, that this could lead to behaviour issues. Um, Owen says, you know, that he really likes the same thing with his care as he gets into routine, he doesn't change from that. And Michelle also describes the consistency of a carer program being really pivotal for Leon's well-being. For our theme of mood, this captured uh, a range of um, psychological aspects like depression and anxiety, but also things like the anger, um, stress, grief and difficulty coping with life stresses as well. So, and again, this kind of works both ways. So this was a, um, an interview I conducted with Sam, who I hope you'll be able to see was quite distressed while we were talking about um, his behaviour. He can't, you know, he's talking about how he's not able to deal with it. He's furious, he's shaking, he's not able to sleep as well. Um, and that was a real um, sort of background to behaviour issues emerging or being triggered by um, incidents when they were frustrated. Um, and again, reciprocally, when people are in good moods, like this quote from Ross, then um, the, that has a direct impact on behaviour as well and better behaviour. The next theme was um, social relationships. And I guess this is pretty um, understandable that an individual who is aggressive or has poor social skills or is so sexually inappropriate behaviour um, may have people that over time don't want to socialise with that person. Um, in a very striking example, Peter actually punched his friend, a good friend, right before the friend's wedding and his face blew up like a peach. And after that they didn't have quite um, the same level of um, relationship quite understandably. Um, but also um, you know, being aggressive just gets in the way of communication as well. And the so theme of social relationships also reflected a change in social roles. 
So there were instances where a wife would say, because of my husband's behaviour change, he's not my husband anymore, I'm more like a carer. Or because of my brother's behaviour change, he can't babysit his nephews anymore. He can't be um, you know, trusted to remain calm when they act out. So that had a clear impact on their capacity to engage in those meaningful social roles as well. On the other hand, um, individuals who were socially isolated, perhaps because of their behaviour or for other reasons, that also led to um, you know, some unhappiness about that situation, which again could trigger the behaviour issues. So it kind of works in a bit of a cycle. And the theme of social relationships is very much in, um, tied to this other theme of meaningful engagement. So individuals had a clear purpose with their life and with their time, they were doing things that they got value from. Um, that was really important and, uh, and a, a actual direction of therapy. And I love, I love this quote um, from Amy, a psychologist, who described how Jack went from throwing furniture around to actually making furniture. Um, so for individuals that, um, that uh, so for example, for individuals with physical or um, aggression like um, Jack there again, um, you know, that impacted his capacity to get a job. On the other hand, um, sometimes the um, behaviour was a barrier to their participation. For example, Sam um, was doing a security <coughs> guard course and he's very aggressive. So that's clearly sort of not appropriate and not suitable as well. So building on from those, um, those topics of meaningful engagement and social relationship comes our theme of identity. And I think this was a really interesting um, finding of our study. There has been a lot of research on identity and brain injury, but not that has brought in behaviour issues as well. I think this is a theme that can, you can really only capture by asking the individual themselves. Um, we found a lot of instances of the person with the brain injury describing how their sense of self had really changed who they were before and who they are now. Before my accident I was quiet, now I'm the loud person at the party. I don't mean to yell. And John describing how his son Sam had behaviour traits that were really galvanised and reinforced or exacerbated by the injury as well. This, this, con um, this theme was really complex and very variable. And not only was the behaviour resulting in a change to the person's identity or the lack of um, ability to engage in meaningful act activities changing their identity, but also that threatened sense of self could result in a lot of grief and distress and frustration. So that kind of gives you a, a bit of a nutshell overview of these key themes. And I thought it might be helpful to kind of go through uh, a couple of examples that kind of demonstrate some of the complexity and the interactions of these themes. So in this first scenario, um, this is about an individual who lives in supported accommodation and um, there's a high staff turnover and there's an agency staff member that, that starts. So that's a, been a change to that person's environment and their routine. Um, there's the loss of the familiar staff member and those um, uh, sort of supportive relationships and known relationships. 
that might lead to um, attention-seeking behaviour in, in an attempt to try to get some sense of control out of the individual's day-to-day -day where things have been happening out of their control, like new people coming into their life and um, perhaps providing an inconsistent degree of support. So, um, and then that kind of loops around again, in a sense. Um, that person's behaviour might change what has to happen in their day. They're no longer able to engage in the activities that they were planning on doing because of a behaviour incident. In another example, this is about an individual who is living at home, has lower support needs and is attending a party and gets overwhelmed. They get um, angry and frustrated that they can't keep up with the conversation, or um, they're not—they can't remember what they were, um, what everyone's been talking about. Then um, the individuals, uh, either by the, the person with the injury, even by their, could be by their own accord that they choose to stay away from people because they've been acting um, impulsively or aggressively, or the the people in their social network stop inviting them to parties and. Um, stop socialising with them. That could mean a loss of meaningful social activities like going to parties or playing with your friends in a you know, regular football match. And lo the loss of that um, act meaningful activity or that sense of purpose about your time does impact then your sense of self, how you see yourself. Maybe I'm no longer a footy player anymore. Who am I? Am I this angry person who doesn't have friends? And then that's very confronting and that leads to more anger and more frustration and, and a cycle again. Um, that then provides that perfect background for getting angrier and leading to yell, yelling or threats. So, <laughs> in summary, um, despite uh, you know, talking to a number of people where we got very individualised accounts, we were able to pull through some common themes but it was very complex. There was a, a high degree of interaction between all the themes that were related to the person as an individual, to their injury, to their social and environmental factors as well. We did find that we could see some trends in those with um, higher support needs compared to those with lower support needs. Those with higher needs had a broader range of behaviours and we saw more discussion of the impact of environmental change on their behaviour. They tended to have less awareness of or less capacity to communicate their behaviour change and less capacity to control themselves in that environment. For those individuals who had lower support needs, those tending to live at home predominantly, they had a greater degree of awareness of their behaviour issues. They were able to describe to us how that impacted on their identity and um, they uh, I, I were engaging in slightly different behaviours or different sort of presentations of these types of behaviours. What we have found is largely consistent with those of other findings and other research, particularly uh, those studies on caregivers, and that there is a really um, concerning impact on caregivers, how they, they see their roles in relation to the person with the injury or the degree of distress about the consequences of these behaviours. Will my son end up in jail? Um, you know, and that the fact that those behaviours were often directed towards those caregivers as well is very confronting. In terms of research that's been um, conducted looking at clinician perspectives, we see again similar, um, similar themes emerging around 
the um, factors which develop and maintain behaviours like the client's characteristics, the families and carers, the environment, as well as what are the consequences of the behaviours on things like family adjustment, um, contact with the criminal justice system and participation in meaningful activities. So to conclude, I think that um, some of the strengths of this study is that we did include the individual with the brain injury and we were able to um, capture meaningful information from those interviews suggesting it is really worthwhile and valid to do so. And there's a kind of broader trend, not just in brain injury, but across the board of including the consumer um, really actively in you know, the design and the research of, of their own um, issues and treatments. We were able to triangulate those themes between the person with the injury, the clinicians, the caregivers and family members, which is, um, which is a, a strength of the study as well. We had a large sample size. Um, we can provide some guidance for clinical interventions based on what um, people have told us. Um, and we've captured a broad range of experiences as well. Now any research isn't without um, its own limitations. So just as it happened, all our participants with brain injury were male. And it may be that um, women have a different experience after brain injury. Um, some research suggests they have better outcomes. So that isn't captured by our research. There were a couple of participants that were too severely impaired to be interviewed. So we weren't able to capture their perspective on, on their injury. When we asked, um, our uh, participants to nominate a clinician, they all happen to be psychologists. So again, that's one um, aspect that you know, might not reflect, for example, OTs or physios or speeches or um, case managers' perspectives as well on the behaviour. Um, and also, we have to be mindful that um, Amelia, myself and Jenny Ponsford, lead um, authors on the study, We're, we all have a background in neuropsychology, which can also sort of taint our um, perspective on, on interpretation. That being said, I think that we can take some clinically meaningful um, information and implications from our findings. I think um, going, going through um, our, our findings, it suggests that it's really important that individuals are able to exert a sense of control or at least controlled choice in their environment that there's a sense of routine and consistency, um, that any um, issues with mood are able to be supported and treated appropriately. Um, that we include the, the individual when we are asking about um, behaviour treatment as well and identifying what is important to them, what matters to them, how does that relate to their sense of self, to the um, activities that they want to participate in. Um, as we, we know from research like by Tamara Ownsworth, how important those meaningful life roles are in, in shaping a person's identity, and we would argue, and in reducing behaviour issues as well. We need to include the other people in their environment, and this may not just be the staff or the family members. Um, there are other people in the environment that can have an active role um, in the person's um, intervention as well. Um, you know, they could be, uh, for example, guitar teachers or um, other, other individuals where they can perhaps get a, a sense of social relationships that they might not have access to otherwise. We need to be mindful of the impact of the behaviour on the caregivers and family members and how that impacts relationships, roles, 
and the caregiver's sense of distress as well. And, and we would argue that providing support to those individuals could also help um, behaviour change issues as well. Um, when we do instigate any intervention, that does need to be uh, modified for the cognitive impairments and the level of insight and awareness that the person has. This can evolve over time and so we think that interventions need to be sort of modified and scaled up or scaled down as the individual progresses over time. Um, and in terms of where um, you as therapists can sort of look for um, appropriate sort of therapy modalities, as we said at the start, there isn't a clear evidence base yet um, for what this therapy should look like, but um, a therapy called Positive Behaviour Supports by Mark Ilvesaka, Tim Feeney and colleagues does sort of tick the boxes of what we've been describing um, because it's sensitive to the person's context and their environment, it's individualised, it includes people in it individual's natural supports and it focuses on um, meaningful participation um, and roles as well. Um, so just before um, we sort of finish off on our discussion of this phase of the research, um, I guess it's uh, important to let you guys know that this was an early sort of phase of a study where we are now into the next step, which is actually to evaluate a therapy for behaviour change after brain injury. And um, wanted to tell you a little bit about that um, study in brief because we are actually hoping to have some recruited more referrals to our program. Um, so uh, I can tell you a little bit about that and then maybe we can go on to some questions and general discussion. So we are conducting this uh, trial of um, Tim Feeney and Mark Ilvesaka's positive behaviour support approach. We have Tim Feeney on board with us as a clinical mentor and, a chief and an investigator on this program where we're providing a year of free interdisciplinary therapy by um, ABI specialists to, um, to evaluate um, and, and sort of build onto this sort of stronger evidence base of is, is this effective for individuals with brain injury. Um, so people who participate get um, randomised either to receive a year of therapy straight up or go into a control condition where they receive their treatments as usual for a year and then commence a year of therapy. And then we follow up individuals um, over a, a year follow-up period as well. So we're interested in people with any kind of brain injury, although this research we talked about was just traumatic brain injury. Um, we are interested in people with other kinds of acquired brain injuries, like stroke or hypoxic injury. Um, we're looking at adults who have any level of current behaviour. So any of the behaviour issues we just talked about, they can be very mild or very severe. Um, and they need to have a, an informant, like a family member or a carer or other therapist who can help us with the research measures. Although we will, of course, be asking the person with the injury to do them as well. But if the person has communication difficulties, they can still participate. Um, and obviously, we don't need people who are already actively receiving great behaviour programs to the study. They are welcome to continue with that. But you might know of some people, particularly without compensation funding, that might um, be really suited to um, receiving this program. Um, so that's a little bit about um, that next phase. And it's, very, it's a very exciting program. It's funded by um, ISCA, who have funded us the whole way through. 
and um, we'll, we look forward in a few years time <laughs> to share the results of that. Um, as it's a randomized controlled trial, we, um, we can't evaluate um, the intervention until the very end. So that's at least three years away. <laughs> um, but we've been going for this, um, this program already for over a year. Um, and uh, yeah, some, some very encouraging results so far. So um, that's, that's that. <laughs> like to open it up but I guess um, I think can I I'd just like to make a really positive comment as someone who loves qualitative research um, that it was so lovely <coughs> to see such a nice mix of both quantitative and qualitative mm -hmm. and that that sense of um, the inf the rich information you can get from mm. the person who's had the experience mm. themselves, mm. Um, which was yeah really lovely to start bringing into the picture. But um, for me, I really like your your end model because I think it. I was looking at that and thinking it's a really nice conceptualization for me as a clinician to sort of be looking at each of those little mm. circles on their own and go what's happening for this particular mm. person and giving me a framework to start thinking about this. Mm. So that was Thank just you. Um, some of the comments that I had. Thank you. Thanks very much, Mark. Yeah, I mean, that's what um, that we hope that, that that model isn't kind of new and unusual, but everyone's going, yeah, well, of course, that, that makes sense. And that, that fits with how I think about behaviour as well. That, that's a really good um, bit of uh, feedback for us if that is the case. If it's not, if this is very different to what your conceptualisation is, we're interested in that too. I guess it's um, one day when we write up all the papers for the other, for each kind of circle, we'll be able to kind of pull out. There are a whole range of other factors that feed into each of those. So, you know, we haven't ignored things like pain. They just, you know, they fit into, you know, the injury, for example. But we, it's very hard to sort of capture all of the complexity and I guess balance that with something that's um, you know, captures the kind of key essences of those as well. So, you know, we're interested in your feedback as well about whether you think that that rings true. I just love the, again, that diagrammatic conceptualisation mm. because mm. it might not use exactly the same words, but I always think that's great to sit down with patients. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, really thank you. Get it when yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so that, that diagram will be in the paper as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Pam? Just from a um, like return to work aspect, I'm just interested because I often, well, you, you obviously think that if people have meaningful activity in their lives, then they're going to be less, yeah. um, have less yeah. behaviour concern, I guess. But were any of the participants in there, did they, any of them have any kind of Yeah, so we did have individuals who were working. Um, the, the one individual I can think of, um, you know, he had sort of sporadic work, but that was incredibly important to him and his mm -hmm. identity and probably also helped his relationship that he wasn't there all the time. Yeah, um, yeah. you felt would get improved if he was, well, but when he was engaged in work. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, that individual I'm thinking of is actually in our, um, our treatment phase. We have two individuals from the qualitative, Three, three individuals from the qualitative phase in our treatment and, and, it, and it actually happens that um, he's no longer in work and his relationship has broken down and um, mm. 
the behaviours have escalated. <laughs> so, yeah, not surprisingly. Um, yeah, so. It's important, it's, I mean, it's great that Esther is funding it, but it would be lovely if we, if that, that could, you know, we could do something more about yeah. providing opportunities for. And we're really mindful of that, that, you know, this, this research that we're doing has the opportunity to feed back to funding agencies because TAC are the, behind ISCAR to say, you know, this is important. Behaviour issues don't go away over time. They need this kind of comprehensive input. People are getting input um, from a funded body but they're, and they're happy with it, but it's not, it's not really resolving the issues. And that's a really key point and not pr probably what TAC want to hear. Um, but that's what we found. It was interesting, I thought it was interesting that so many of them were still getting neuropsychology because they had behaviour mm. and they were getting neuropsychology but the other factors that you were talking about, yeah. Yeah, it's not just neuropsychology. Were being missed out on down the Yeah, road. yeah. So great to see that, that happen. Yeah, yeah, it's, it really requires a very kind of comprehensive and integrated approach. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I was going to say that um, I like people that are wrong with her nature of behaviour, mm. we're really mindful of in how our, our um, research um, therapy trial is interpreted that we're not saying a year of therapy is enough to tick all the boxes no. but we're hoping that an intensive year that has a focus on long-term sort of um, coaching of natural supports so that the people in the person's long-term environment have um, tools to help that person that that will stem it to some extent but there is always an expectation that life will happen <laughs> Someone will die, a job will get lost, um, carers will change, and that people do need ongoing episodic input, um, and that these, you know, these problems aren't going away over these decades. So yeah, that really relationship changes. So that yeah. um, they've had an issue with a child, and then the child becomes a teenager. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Relationships break up. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully this this does provide, I guess you know, one as extra aspect of the evidence for what co community clinicians are experiencing and that, you know, that can then form an evidence base for why we're doing what we're doing in the community treatment sphere. Mm. I yeah. wanted to ask, sorry, Amelia, yeah. about yeah, sure. the, um, the, nine, the categories of the of. Yes. Did you find or did you get time to look at any relationship between the pre or post-injury factors that correlated with these nine categories? Yeah. We would have loved to. Unfortunately, the sample, so we tried to do a regression with clinical weighted severity as the dependent variable, but two things, sample was so small and the variation on that total score for the OBS was so small that statistically we weren't really able to mm. do a regression. But 
certainly if he had more data, that would have been something that would have been really interesting mm. um, to do. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, we did, we did actually do the regressions first and had a look at them and there was nothing. Okay. So, yeah, unfortunately, that would have been very interesting. Yeah, well, yeah I, I kind idea. of feel like, you know, when you do the less common things, mm. like the self-injurious behaviour absolutely, absolutely. and the um, sexually transmitted issues, things like that, yep. I feel like it's people that have had pre- or post-injury psychiatric mm. problems. That's okay. That's a feeling. Yeah. Well, we're collecting more data as part of the mm. intervention, so whether we could put that together with this data, we'd have then something like 100 ofs, and then look at those factors. Absolutely, it's a great idea. And you yeah. might want to look at Graeme Simpson's group on the New South Wales report. They mm. did, uh, you know, he was one of the authors of the Overt Behaviour Scale, and so he has a very comprehensive report. Um, there's the journal articles, there's also a, a government report as well on factors associated with the mm. OBS as well, so that might be helpful. Yeah. Hmm. Any other questions? I'm interested if anyone disagrees with like anything yeah. we've presented. Yeah. I mean, this is a pretty biased audience, I think, but... <laughs> um, So there were some, there were actually individuals who were getting lots of support. There were, there was a wife that was in an ABI carers group and there were a carer that had um, done um, ABI training and care um, support as well, but they, they all wanted more. Mm. <laughs> um, absolutely. And many of them reported just receiving booklets or links to websites to look at during the inpatient period and that was the extent of it. So there was a real, a real mix. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And I think also, you know, potentially you can't um, ignore that they are, there could be a bias. Those people wanted to participate in this as a research study. They, they kind of um, are motivated individuals. Um, so there may be many individuals out there that aren't interested in more support as well. So uh, the, the purpose of the next phase of the study is evaluating the intervention. Um, we, as one of our intervention practices, we do um, a technique called identity mapping. Um, so we do record how often we do that and we ask people what their experience of the intervention, including that, is. So that will be a part of it. And I actually found personally that the, the, the topic of identity was absolutely fascinating. Um, Jacinta Douglas and Tamara Owensworth have done a lot of work in the area and um, it, it's, so, it's so interesting to kind of and I, I, I do believe that qualitative research really opens the door to those sorts of discussions that you kind of really can't get the same sense out of, out of a questionnaire, for example. So, yeah. Did what you find that self-identity is more positive or negative? The way people... We didn't kind of try to dichotomise it in, in that oh, way, but uh, I certainly think it was more associations with um, you know, for example, like meaningful engagement was a really big part of people's positive social identity. You know, I like it when I do my gardening. I, you know, like going to the pub and playing pokies with my friends. And, you know, th those sort of identity and um, meaningful participation and social relationships were really strongly intertwined as and well. There's also a degree, for people who have self-awareness, there seem to be some identity protection going on so talking about well that's you know I yell up that's not me that's my injury and I don't really have control over that mm. so that was another interesting mm. aspect of identity that came out mm. yeah
just to touch on the um, randomised control trial we're doing, so actually taking referrals until the end of March. So if anybody did have someone in mind, cut off at the end of March. So please get in contact with either of us. And that does unfortunately mean that they have to be in the study and seen yeah. by Amelia for a baseline appointment as well. I will make it happen, I can do it quick. Yeah, so if, you do, uh, if yeah. you do have any Getting thoughts, touch. like, you know, today. Absolutely, <laughs> um, just give us a call, yeah. shoot us an email, we'll get onto it. Yeah, we are taking, we initially wanted just to take people an hour away, but we are, we have opened it up statewide and we, for individuals who can manage with teletherapy, we do have um, clinician, a clinician in Shepparton as well who can do some of that region and we're very interested in referrals for that area particularly, but um, we can, yeah, we can chat through any specific individuals that you might want to talk about, yeah. Thank you. All right, can everyone put their hands together and thank Kate and